Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 18th of September. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Dr Chris Smith and also with us this week is Dr Kat Arney. Hello Kat. Hello. Now this week we are chilling out in the world of cryogenics. That's the science of the super cold. We'll find out what happens to living tissue when it freezes and how we can use low temperatures to keep organs and maybe even one day whole bodies healthy on ice in suspended animation. And we'll talk to the company behind an attractive new design of super-efficient fridge. And this one runs on magnetism. Plus, in this week's news, why 94% of university lecturers rate their teaching skills as above average. Think about the maths there. We all have an inherent tendency to exaggerate our own skills, but why? And if you'd like to get in touch, and we do love to hear from you, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can write on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney, and we're kicking off with a look at some of this week's top science stories, including an important breakthrough in the world of HIV. Kat. Online computer gaming sometimes has a bit of a bad reputation um, as people staying at home just playing with their computers into the small hours in their pants. Uh, And it's sometimes viewed as a mere pastime without much outward benefit. But now, a new paper published today in the journal Nature Structural Molecular Biology reveals how gamers playing an online game called Fold It have managed to crack the three-dimensional structure of an important protein produced by the Mason-Pfizer monkey virus, which causes a disease similar to AIDS in monkeys. Now, figuring out the 3D structures of proteins is really important in order to understand how they work and to develop drugs that can target them. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may remember that the paper's lead author is Professor David Baker. He was back on the show in August talking about his work and talking about Fold It. 
Now, there's several lab techniques that can be used to figure out protein structures, but these don't always provide a definite answer, and they tend to rely on having a good idea, a good model of the structure with which to interpret your physical data. Now, in the case of this monkey virus protein, scientists had struggled for a very long time to come up with a solution with no luck. So the researchers turned to the ingenuity of the Foldit players to try and come up with the 3D structure. But I thought that they had mega supercomputers all over the world doing this kind of work rather than asking people at home to do it. Well, there's a lot of computing power going into doing 3D structural work. There's a big server called Rosetta, and it also uses distributed computing. That's the power of people's home computers when they're not using them. And they churn through millions of possible protein structures in an automated way to look for the ones that look most realistic. But again, in some cases, such as this monkey virus protein, Rosetta still can't provide the right answers. So they thought they'd apply a little bit of human intuition and puzzle solving. And what did that actually do? Well, in this case, the researchers gave the Foldit gamers some basic information about the protein's likely structure based on data from a technique called NMR spectroscopy. And the gamers set to work, kind of tweaking and playing and fiddling about with it, and they came up with a model which they tweaked a bit more. And the researchers particularly note the contributions of three gamers, and obviously they have online names, so that's SP Vincent, Grabhorn and Mimi, uh, for making specific breakthroughs in solving the structure. And now once the players had come up with a good model based on sound biochemical and physical principles so it worked as a protein, the researchers could then use that model as the basis for interpreting the data from their physical analysis of the protein using X-ray crystallography. And they found that it was a really good match, proving that the Foldit gamers had accurately predicted the structure of the protein. Incredible to think that people at home doing this kind of work as a game are contributing to active science, but why is this so important in this context? Well, in the case of this monkey virus protein, this final structure has revealed some very interesting regions that could be targeted by specific drugs and could tell us about other virus proteins. But more importantly, this is the first demonstration of the power and ingenuity of online gamers to solve long-standing scientific problems, combining computing power with the human brain. And it doesn't necessarily need the brains of scientists. Most of these gamers don't have a background in biochemistry. And there's an awful lot of unsolved protein structures out there so it's likely that Foldit gamers are going to make a lot more breakthroughs in the future so it's, it's nice to know that they're making contribution to science while sitting at home in their pants on the computer. Don't judge everyone by your own standards Kat. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now this week uh, scientists have also probed an interesting question which is why we tend to exaggerate or over exaggerate our own abilities at least to ourselves. In other words we're more confident than we ought to be Uh, In fact, a study that was done previously showed that 94% of university lecturers rated their teaching skills as above average, which obviously can't be true. So why, given that we've got this clear observation that people do exaggerate their own abilities, why does it happen? Um, I don't know if you have anything to to sort of add to this, Kat, because I know that it's inhumanly possible for you to spend as much time on Facebook and Twitter as your own profile (laughs) suggests that you would. Absolutely. I've heard of something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is where people who actually have less skills and less knowledge overrate their own skills and knowledge and people who are actually talented and clever kind of tend to play it down so I think there is a tendency to uh, to exaggerate your your skills and knowledge if you actually don't have them and you don't realize you haven't got them. But the really interesting thing that has been observed is that there is this ubiquity of people tending to be more confident than perhaps 
they should be. And so we've got this biological observation. It happens. But there's the question, of course, why does it happen? Well, there's a couple of guys, Dominic Johnson from Edinburgh University and James Fowler from University of California, San Diego, UCSD. We've had James Fowler on the show before, actually. Interesting character. Um, I interviewed him, and it was the time when he published the research showing that if your friends on Facebook gain weight, then they'll make you fat too. <laughs> so don't have fat friends on Facebook was his conclusion. This time they've done something different. They've actually tested with a very interesting paper published in Nature this week, this particular piece of um, questioning. And what they've done is to build a computer model, which they say, in their own words, uses mathematics that's painfully complicated in order to test this. So what they do is they have some notional players, computer-generated players, that compete for a resource, and they're supplied with some information about each other, and they have to then size up each other and decide if they want to either fight that person for the resource or to back down. And so the key thing here is the uncertainty. You think you know your opponent, but there's a degree of uncertainty. The other thing is that it also is determined by how big the prize is. And what they find is that time and time again when they run their model over many, many, many iterations, in other words, generations and generations of these trials, they find there is a clear benefit every time through being overconfident, having the idea that you're going to win when actually... Maybe you shouldn't think that. There's a clear biological advantage in this model. And the point is that if you decide always to back down, then you might be walking away potentially from a situation you might win and therefore you would potentially lose out on a meal ticket. So they argue it is actually beneficial for the most part to not back down and to have more confidence than perhaps you ought to. I don't know if that plays into your hands and your experience, Kat. I don't know. It's interesting to think that there's some biological basis to bluffing and uh, in case it pays off, I um, reckon. We'll have to wait and see. But you can find that published this week in the journal Nature if you want to follow it up. Wonderful piece of work. Now, also this week, a newly launched multi-million pound X-ray imaging facility at the University of Southampton has been providing new insights into a whole host of areas from climate change through to evolution. And the combined facilities that they've built at the site not only mean that a lot of things can be scanned very quickly, but also very large, and I mean seriously large things can be studied. Subjects that they're looking at range from dinosaur remains to bits of aircrafts and even crocodile poo. Jane Reck has been finding out what it's all about. Three-dimensional X-ray vision is no longer just the domain of fictional characters like Superman. For Professor Ian Sinclair and his team at the University of Southampton, it's all in a day's work. Using something called computer tomography, they could find themselves doing anything from gazing into the jaws of an enormous fossilised sea creature to looking at the less appealing intricacies of a landfill site. The term tomography essentially means looking at something by slices through it. But the nice thing about computer tomography as we perform it is you don't actually have to cut the thing up to see those slices. And in fact, if you can take many slices of something all at once, you then get a 3D image of what is inside it. The centre offers the single largest high-energy, high-resolution computer tomography capability in UK universities. The further important thrust of the work is not just scale, it's going to be the numbers of samples that we can put through. In addition to the very large scanning machine, we have another device sitting beside it that will handle smaller objects. In that machine, we can basically scan at a rate that's about 10 times faster than what comparable systems around the UK or indeed around the world can typically achieve today. It's not just the scanner, it's the computing hardware 
and the analysis software that we are integrating together into a complete workflow where the overall productivity end-to-end will just be faster than it is elsewhere. The centre is supported by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. It's being used in an incredible array of projects, including examination of the Staffordshire hoard, which is the largest ever find of Anglo-Saxon gold, the structure of plant roots and how they may respond to climate change in the future, and the development of human health and disease. However, even this list doesn't begin to cover everything. We have rubbish real rubbish from landfill sites being pulled up. This is a very important engineering challenge to understand the behaviour of landfill. We are doing innovative, absolutely world-leading work on the performance of composites for structures of great variety of applications, whereby using CT to the level that we can look at an airplane wing and if we really, really need to find individual carbon fibres, we can understand composite structures and load them and cause them to fail, understand those failures and produce new models of a form that will reliably allow engineers to design with these materials in a way that they cannot do at the minute. One of the most exciting projects to go behind the four-tonne door of the largest scanner is an enormous fossilised skull of a pleosaur found on the Jurassic coast of England. The pleosaur is a fearsome beast something like 17 metres long. The pieces are large lumps of rock and it is of considerable interest to take the small bits that the skull has become broken down into, scan them, get the exact structure and then digitally reconstruct it. We can also see the internal structure in considerable fidelity. We can pick out where blood vessels nerve channels would have laid, where tendons would have been on the, that were holding the whole thing together. There's only a handful that's been found in the world, and the skull we have represents one of the most intact and least deformed, and therefore is a very valuable resource to gain information from. New insight into the evolution of man is being provided by an unusual find on an archaeological dig in Africa. So This is an extremely interesting story of an uninspiring brown lump of rock being brought to the lab with the notion that it may or may not have been a fossilised crocodile poo. This was found in an area of Africa where apes that were ancestors to hominids, humans, were known to live. And it was felt to be very important to understand what conditions, what environment they lived in. Particularly, was there water? Were there lakes around? Were there marshes around? The underlying question is, was living in and around water one of the driving forces for apes becoming two-legged and subsequently evolving into humankind as we are now we imaged it and they came to the conclusion it was a crocodile poo and this strange small lump of uninspiring nature turns out to be part of a much larger picture of human development and human evolution in the long term who knows what other uses the center could be put to a bit like superman's powers it seems the possibilities are endless there are so many opportunities it seems to be limitless at times I have used the terminology to people of imagining having Superman's instant 3D X-ray vision. In a way, that's what this gives you. Something akin to that can be achieved. I'd like that. That was Professor Ian Sinclair from the University of Southampton ending that report from Jane Reck. Now, 
In other news this week, a very big breakthrough in understanding how our brains control our immune systems. For many years we've known that the way you feel and also that certain brain conditions can directly influence how the immune system responds in the body. But actually how one was connected to the other has been very difficult to suss out. But now there's a piece of research published this week in the journal Science by Feinstein Institute researcher Kevin Tracy and his colleagues, and they've actually unpicked what's going on. They've been looking at the spleen, which is one of our very important immune organs. It's in the abdomen on the left-hand side at the top. And branches of the nervous system go into the spleen, and they signal to this group of found white blood cells called T-lymphocytes, CD4 cells. So the nerves secrete the chemical noradrenaline onto these white blood cells. The white blood cells respond to the noradrenaline by producing another chemical called acetylcholine by turning on a gene called CHAT, choline acetyltransferase, which makes acetylcholine. And that acetylcholine then goes on to other immune cells and modulates or controls their activity to suppress the production of inflammatory chemicals. And so in this way, the brain, the nervous system, can turn off inflammation and it can protect patients or reduce the risk of getting things like septic shock and that kind of thing. The researchers did the study in a very elegant way to prove that this was what was going on because they used mice which had no ability to make these CD4 white blood cells and the effect went away and they then transplanted into these mice the CD4 white blood cells from other healthy mice and the effect came back again. And they were able to show that it's only when these cells are active, in other words they're responding to some kind of inflammatory signal, that they then hear the signal from the nervous system. And as Kevin Tracy points out in his paper, it's not just the spleen that does this because we have lots of instances around the body where there are white blood cells that can talk to each other and the uh, nervous system in this way, including lymph nodes, your glands, where you react to incoming antigens or challenges or infections, and also the payers' patches, the aggregations of lymphoid tissue in the guts. So understanding how this is working is going to give us a whole new way, potentially, to combat inflammatory conditions, including possibly autoimmune conditions elsewhere in the body and in other conditions as well. Kat? That's fascinating stuff. The immune system is really absolutely incredible. Um, thank you. And now, with a look at what else has been making scientific headlines, here's Mira Senthalingham with this week's Naked Scientist's News Flash. Tobacco plants could hold the key to large-scale production of flu vaccines in the future. In research unveiled at the ESWI conference on influenza in Malta this week, Canadian biotech company Medicargo have been adding genes encoding the outer coat of the influenza virus to tobacco plants. These produce immune-stimulating particles that resemble the flu virus but are devoid of any infectious content. Professor Brian Ward is Medicargo's medical officer. Viral protein then migrates to the surface of the plant cell and it auto-assembles into these small virus-like particles that look from the outside like a virus but have nothing on the inside. The British Geological Survey have published a risk list of 52 chemical elements that could soon be in short supply. Abundance, location of reserves and political stability of countries mining the elements were taken into account when compiling the list. And at the top were metals like platinum, tungsten and the rare earth elements. From the University of Exeter, Professor of Mineralogy Francis Wall. So things like hybrid cars, uh, wind turbines, mobile phones, they all use a huge number of elements. In a mobile phone, there are something like 66 different chemical elements incorporated into that technology. So we now need to be looking at the availability of elements all across the periodic table. 
Wheelchair users could soon use their eyes to direct where they go. Dr Prashant Pillay's team at the University of Bradford have developed a tracking device resembling a pair of glasses that, in combination with an electric wheelchair, uses cameras to track the position of the wearer's eyes. The most important thing about this is to try and give a lot of independence to the disabled. Our final aim is to try and have a probably old house which you could control just by looking at different appliances. So you could look at the TV and switch it on, and look at the radio and switch it on, and then get onto the wheelchair and then look exactly where you want to go and it takes you. A camera developed by UK scientists can detect when someone is not telling the truth. The device looks for telltale facial changes, including altered expressions, blood flow and eye movements known to be associated with lying. Inventor Hassan Yugel is at the University of Bradford. Our accuracy rate is 70%, which means we can catch uh, two out of three lies. We hope to go beyond that up to a level of 90%. We see this uh, in, let's say, police interrogation scenarios, immigration border control points, anywhere uh, where interviewing is involved, including potentially job interviews. And finally, levels of testosterone in men drop when they become fathers. A trial of over 600 men in the Philippines, led by Christopher Kazawa from Northwestern University, found that single men have higher levels of testosterone than those who have become fathers. And amongst those helping with childcare, levels fell by up to 34%. Interacting with a child can lower a man's testosterone, it seems, but we also know from prior studies that men during pregnancy of their mate approaching birth, you see a drop in their testosterone before the child is born. And so that suggests that there's something psychological, perhaps. And it also could be the stress of of an impending birth. We don't really know. But it seems like there are multiple ways by which having a child can lower a man's testosterone. The work suggests an evolutionary adaptation, using high levels of testosterone to attract and secure a mate, with levels lowering at fatherhood, wiring men biologically to help with parenting. That's Mira Senthalingam with this week's Naked Scientist News Flash. And if you'd like to follow up on any of the stories you've heard so far, transcripts and references are all available at nakedscientist.com slash news. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris Smith, that's me, and with Dr Katani. And shortly we're going to be exploring the physics of freezing cold temperatures. We're into cryogenics this week. And in fact, we've put out a call on Facebook, on nakedscientist.com slash Facebook. That's our Facebook page. And we're asking you, would you, given the option, like to see yourself frozen for 4,000 years? What would you think the future will be like for you in 4,000 years? If you were given the chance, would you go for it? If you have any comments or thoughts on that topic, then go to nakedscientist.com forward slash Facebook. You'll see the discussion that's happening there, and uh, please add your thoughts. I do worry about the quality of the television in 4,000 years anyway. But first, salmon numbers in the UK have been falling since the 1970s. Now, this isn't down to overfishing, so scientists are trying to find out why. However, salmon are pretty tricky to follow. Their life cycle takes them from rivers into the open oceans and then back again to rivers to breed. Now, a new technique that uses samples of the fish's scales could change all of that. Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson met up with Southampton University's Clive Truman and Kirstine Robinson. Here we are in the Imaging Biominerals Lab where we keep the scale archives. Now you say scale archives, all I can see so far are a bundle of small white 
boxes. That's the collection from the River Froom archive, which contains scales on, mounted on microscope slides dating from 1971 all the way up to 2002. And in each box... Just taking one open there. Oh, yeah, it's got two tiny translucent scales, probably slightly smaller than my fingernail. Clive, what are these scales actually made from? Scales are actually related to teeth, evolutionarily, and they're made of a protein and a mineral. And the mineral part is apatite, calcium phosphate, and the organic part is collagen. The collagen grows underneath the apatite, and it's the collagen part that we're actually using uh, for our analyses. Before we get to the analysis, I see that there are a couple of microscopes over there on the other side of the lab, so I suspect this is an ideal opportunity for us to actually look at those fish scales in more detail and find out exactly how you examine them. Absolutely. Kirstine, you're going to just pop that slide under the microscope. I did not expect that. If you hadn't told me that was a fish scale, I would say you've got a cross-section of a tree. Yes, it does look very much like that, and it's because the salmon put down these calcium phosphate, these apatite mineral rings on top of the scale every two to three weeks, sometimes even every one week if they're growing rapidly, they'll lay down another ring on this scale. What are you actually looking for, then? What we're looking for is the very final season of marine growth at sea and from these salmon scales, very much like on a tree you can tell how many winters they've had at sea how many summers they've had at sea and how many years they've lived in total including how many years they spent in freshwater Purely from counting the rings? It's actually simpler than counting the rings what we do is we use the rings to determine which part we sample and if you look at the scales through a microscope there are dark bands and light bands the dark bands are where the rings are very close together because the fish have been growing slowly in the winter and the light bands where the rings are further apart because the fish have been growing rapidly when there's been lots of food in the summer so what we do is we dissect out the final portion of summer from the scale and then we have that portion of marine collagen that they grew while they were feeding at sea and we can analyse that chemically to find out what was going on with them at sea. Now this is where you come in, isn't it, Clive, as a chemist. How do you do this analysis? All marine food chains depend upon phytoplankton, the plants of the ocean at the bottom of the food chain. Now when those plants grow, they fix carbon and there's two forms of carbon, two isotopes and the proportion of those different isotopes that's fixed into the phytoplankton cells is dependent upon the environmental conditions at the time those plankton grew and in the place that those plankton grew. So fish feeding on plankton in one particular place at one particular time will inherit an isotopic signal or an isotope ratio that's different from fish feeding in a slightly different place. We try and match up the carbon isotope record that we see in the scales with the record of sea surface temperature that we can get from satellites or from records of ocean temperature. And they also go back for decades. Kirstine, have you found out where... Atlantic salmon are spending a certain period of their time? We've looked at two populations specifically, the one from the River Froome in Dorset and another one from the northeast coast of the UK. And what we found was that the River Froome fish tended to match up between their isotopes and sea surface temperature records around Iceland, whereas the northeast coast salmon 
seemed to be spending their summers in the Norwegian Sea, with the younger portions of the population spending it further south towards home and the older portions further north. Not only that, we've found something very unexpected in that fish from just a few hundred miles apart are doing completely different things in the ocean. That was Kirstine Robinson and Clive Truman talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Sue Nelson about using fish scales to track down salmon at sea. And there's more from the Planet Earth team online at nakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Thank you very much, Kat. Uh, we heard on Second Life from Sue Windrose, and she says, I wonder if mothers could make a game out of folding laundry. This is in relation to your Fold It computer game, Kat. <laughs> I wonder if we can solve the next biological problem by doing some ironing. Who knows? Now, freezing is a great way to slow down chemical reactions, and this is why we use a freezer to stop food going off and why organs that are going to be transplanted are kept cold. But freezing can do serious damage to biological tissues. But some organisms have evolved very clever chemical ways around this, and scientists are trying to figure out how they actually do it. One of those scientists is Lorna Dugan, who's a biophysicist at Leeds University. She's with us. Lorna, welcome. Hello. So how are you approaching this problem? Well, um, Chris, I am a physicist and I'm using an experimental technique to try and understand how cryoprotectant molecules work. Um, So cryoprotectant molecules are things like glucose and glycerol. These are sugars and sugar alcohols and they're used all around the world by people in research labs. Um, They're used when people want to store proteins or cells in fridges or freezers at low temperatures for long periods of time. And having the sugar or having the sugar alcohol there allows you to do that. It allows you to bring those proteins or those cells to very low temperatures without them being damaged. So in my research lab, we're trying to figure out how is it it's, it's possible to do that. And the particular area that we're focused on is uh, proteins. And you mentioned proteins earlier on in the show with CAT. So proteins have this very unique three-dimensional structure. And that structure is really important for the function of the protein. When you heat a protein up or when you apply a force to a protein, you unravel it just like you would unravel a piece of string. So you you reduce that three-dimensional structure. So what we want to try to figure out is what happens when you add these interesting cryoprotectant molecules to the surroundings of the protein? What do they do to stop the protein unravelling? So at the moment we're using these chemicals because we know they work and other animals Mm -hmm. in nature use chemicals like them because they have evolved to have them because they work. But scientifically speaking, we don't really understand very much about how they're working. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So they work. So why, why do I need to do these experiments? Um, so one of the things that's motivating me, just to give you an example, uh, there's some research going on here at Leeds where they're using these cryoprotectant molecules to preserve ovarian cell tissue. And this is incredibly important for fertility treatment. Now, the problem with this is if you use a molecule like glucose or glycerol to preserve these cells, when you freeze them and then rethaw them at a later date, you only recover a certain percentage of these cells. Now, ideally, we would want to recover as much as possible so that we can use them for later treatment. So we want to go right back to the beginning. We want to understand how these molecules are working. We want to understand how different cryoprotectant molecules work. And then we want to figure out which is the right cryoprotectant to use for this protein and for this particular cell or this particular tissue. So we really want to get down to the details of how this mechanism works. 
what do we know so far about how it's working? Because we've got lots of natural examples to look at. There are plants that grow in very dry countries that can survive enormous amounts of desiccation and they stabilise themselves and come back to life just as soon as they're made wet again. There are other things that can survive temperature extremes in the opposite direction. Are there any chemical processes that unite the two that can give us a clue as to how these organisms are able to resist these extremes? Well, one particular school of thought is that the cryoprotectants do something interesting to the water in the environment. Um, So is it possible that, for example, glycerol can do something to stop the water freezing? And when water freezes, it forms this extended hydrogen-bonded network. And this can be incredibly damaging for biological cells because it can rupture the membrane of the cell. So that's one line of research that we're following. We're trying to look at the details of the water network when it has cryoprotectant molecules in its vicinity. And it's really not as simple as it destroys the hydrogen-bonded network. Um, It's much more detailed than that. So water is still able to form a network, but glycerol, the example that we're sticking with for the second, glycerol is very effective at getting in between that hydrogen-bonded network So certainly it is diminished, and in this way it could stop the water freezing at its normal temperature. If you look at the freezing temperature of water and glycerol, water freezes around zero degrees, glycerol freezes at about plus 20 degrees. But if you put them together in a very particular combination, you can get that mixture to freeze at below zero degrees, right down at minus 47 degrees C. So there's something obviously really interesting going on when you mix these two hydrogen-bonded liquids together. It sounds elegantly simple what you're saying, but I'm sure it's a totally different matter to try to work out the movements of particles which are literally just a couple of atoms glued together. So how are you following these networks of particles, the water (laughs) molecules and the glycerol, and seeing how they interact together? Okay, well, we're using two experimental techniques. The first one is neutron diffraction, and we're doing those experiments at the ISIS facility at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories near Oxford. Um, Neutron diffraction allows you to look at atomistic level detail at liquids, and so it allows us to ask these questions about the hydrogen bonded network. Now, of course, we're obviously interested in the proteins as well, and we're using another experimental technique to look at protein stability. So we're using an instrument called an atomic force microscope, which you may have heard of before in the show. Um, This instrument was created back in the 1980s, and it earned its creators the Nobel Prize in Physics, actually. So we've built um, a modified form of the atomic force microscope here in Leeds. And what that allows us to do, it allows us to pick up a single protein and to apply a mechanical force to the protein. And that force is enough to unravel the folded 3D structure of the protein. It's a very specialist piece of equipment because the forces that we need to apply are actually piconewtons and we're working with molecules that are on a nanometer length scale. But we can do this and we do this every day in the lab. So we're applying these tiny forces to proteins in the presence of cryoprotectant molecules and this allows us to look at the details of the kinetics and the dynamics of protein unfolding and folding in these interesting cryoprotecting environments. 
And so putting it all together for us, Lorna, just mm-hmm. very briefly, because we're going to talk to Barry Fuller, who's here with us as well this week, and he actually applies some of the techniques that you've been discussing. What do you actually think is going on when we mix one of these cryoprotecting chemicals with, say, a cell or a set of proteins to protect that protein down at very low temperature? Just to, just to summarise for us. Okay, I think I... <laughs> I think the the solution is incredibly important. So the hydrogen bonded network that the water is forming plays a massive impact on the stability of the protein. I think the way the cryoprotectant molecule is interacting with the cell or the protein itself can give it extra stability as well. And the concentration of that solution is key to the temperature at which you can reduce the system without it becoming um, denatured. Brilliant. Thank you, Lorna. That's Lorna Dugan. She's from Leeds University. She's sticking with us, so if you have any questions for her, then you can send them in, chris at thenakedscientists.com if you'd like to email. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. There's a Facebook page running, nakedscientists.com slash Facebook will get you there easily. Put your questions in and we will put them to Lorna. And our next guest is Barry Fuller, who Kat's going to talk to in just a second as we get further through the programme. Kat. Now, one good reason to understand these physical processes that Lorna's just been talking about is to use them in organ transplants and tissue archiving, um, a way that freezing tissues and organs could actually keep them healthier for longer so they can be transplanted to people that need them. But at the moment, only very, very simple things like sperm and egg cells can cope with the freezing process. Now, we're joined by Barry Fuller. He's Professor in Surgical Sciences at UCL, and he's working on this low-temperature preservation of cells, tissues and organs. Thanks for joining us, Barry. Hello. Hello, Kat. So tell us a little bit at the moment about how we freeze live tissues and, and what sort of things we can freeze. Well, the ability to store cells and tissues at low temperatures, as you say, is really very helpful in many areas of medicine and biology, and particularly where we need to transfer cells and tissues between different patients, different institutions. It it makes things possible where in the past it wasn't possible. So for the future, there are many, we hope there are many ways that we can build on this little bit of knowledge that we have already and take this forward into the new areas of regenerative medicine and stem cell biology for the future. Now, I, I actually used to work on um, very early embryos, and I know that you can freeze a little ball of cells, an embryo, you can freeze that for several years even, and then thaw it, transplant it into a lady, and it will grow into a baby. Why can't we freeze tissues like, say, liver or, or a heart and, and bring them back? Well, you're right, we can freeze embryos, but we had a lot of learning to do to be able to do that. As Lorna has said, we needed to understand a little bit about the antifreezes or cryoprotectants, the need to have them inside the cell and around the cell, and also control the rate of cooling, the way that heat uh, moves in the system and the way that, as Lorna said, ice forms, because the fundamental problem is the way that water transmits into ice at very low temperatures so we had to learn how to do that by controlling physical events to make it successful even for small cells moving up the scale to large tissues and organs we haven't yet been able to make the engineering work to have that exquisite control of cooling and warming that we need is that because it's difficult just to get all the cells in a larger piece of tissue with all the right stuff in them, with all the cryoprotectants in them, and cool them all down at the same speed? Exactly right, because we've learnt to avoid the formation of ice as much as possible. 
and getting the right antifreezes, as, as Lorna said, getting the control of cooling, we can get living cells and tissues to very low temperatures with small amounts of ice, and then they go to a glassy state. The, the residual water goes glassy, so we avoid the problems of ice. Now, again, in small samples of cells and embryos, you might say, you can do that in something like 100 microliters and easily control the cooling and warming exquisitely. If you have something the size of a human liver of a kilogram, it becomes really very difficult to have that exquisite control across the whole of the organ. So what sort of things are you looking at to try and uh, enable this kind of larger organs or more tissues to be cryopreserved in the future? Well, one of the things we're doing working with engineers is to, to look at varying the, the rates of temperature change in larger volumes so that we can induce this glassy state in a more controlled way. In the past, we've tended to simply use a, a slow linear cooling rate because it was easy to produce. Understanding where the damage areas are in the low temperature scale is helping us focus on different parts of the cooling chain and possibly manipulate those rates of cooling at different parts of the the overall cycle. So we're moving away from a linear to a non-linear profile. So that's not just kind of sticking something in the freezer. You're actually, are you trying to control different regions of, say, a liver to cool them? Different parts of the cooling cycle having slower or faster regimens so that the size of the tissue or organ won't lose control of temperature change. Because, as you know, if, if you put a liver into a, a normal freezer, the outside will freeze very quickly and the centre will stay unfrozen for many hours. So we need to be able to make sure that everything transmits across the whole of the organ in terms of cooling. And just to sort of explain why this is so important, I understand that at the moment, say if you have an organ for transplant, you can only keep it alive outside the body for, for a couple of days at the most. Why would it be so useful to be able to freeze organs or, or keep them preserved at lower temperatures for longer? Well, we, we can't freeze organs, as we just said. We We can store them in special liquids just above freezing at about 4 degrees centigrade, making sure that these special solutions are around all the cells in the organ. And that helps to prevent some of the injury of the cooling and the fact that the organ's outside the body. It's not receiving oxygen. And what we're trying to do now is to reproduce a a life support system for the organ at low temperatures, which will pump around oxygen and nutrients and try and keep the organ in a better state at low temperatures because our cells and bodies, organs, can use oxygen and uh, molecules like glucose at low temperatures very slowly, but they can use them. So we need to be able to resuscitate those organs and keep them in the best possible quality for the patient that's going to receive them. That's great stuff, absolutely fascinating. That is Professor Barry Fuller from UCL, and uh, he will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you've got any questions on super cold uh, or organ transplants or organ preservation, do get in touch with us. Indeed, thanks, Kate. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or on the Facebook page, that's nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or you can drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science... The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. 
And a new way to make an efficient domestic fridge is being developed here in Cambridge. The company, who are called Camfridge, use a motor to move a special metal alloy through a magnetic field. And this causes the alloy to change temperature, and that temperature change is then passed to the fridge interior using a flow of cold water. The result is a fridge that is at least twice as efficient as the one that's currently working in your kitchen. And Ben Valsler met with Camfridge's CEO, Neil Wilson, to find out more. The basic challenge uh, with domestic refrigeration is trying to get more and more efficient appliances. An average domestic fridge uh, at home is probably about 10% efficient. And the European Union has introduced a a new set of legislation essentially asking fridge manufacturers to go from 10% to 20%. The challenge they have is that they can do this, but they need to do a lot of work uh, in changing the insulation. They've got to use vacuum panels. Vacuum panels are, are fragile and expensive. And also it requires them to redesign uh, their appliance. Uh, Manufacturers um, are keen not to do this. And so they're looking to our technology to allow them to introduce the highest efficiency devices without having to change the way they actually make and construct an appliance. So your device does the job of the compressor that we would normally see in the back of a fridge. Yes, if you look at the back of your fridge, you see a big metal black box. And that's the gas compressor, the engine inside compresses uh, the gas which liquefies and that that then gets pumped around and where the gas can evaporate and when it evaporates it absorbs heat and and cools down the milk at the other side of the cycle the gas recondenses into liquid and uh, emits heat so at the back of your fridge you feel heat coming out that's the gas recondensing and inside your fridge of course it's cold and that's where the liquid is evaporating how are you seeking to replace it or improve on it We're using a completely different approach to uh, creating a cooling cycle, using magnets and special metal alloys. In some sense, uh, conceptually, it's a very similar sort of process. In the gas compressor, you rely on the liquid gas transition. In the magnetic solution, we're relying on a very similar change from a ferromagnetic phase, where the electrons inside this metal are all nicely organized and aligned, In that state, it's attracted to magnets. And by changing the magnetic field, you can make it switch to a paramagnetic phase where the electrons are now completely uh, disordered and no longer attracted to external magnetic fields. So how does the change in the magnetic field or the magnetic structure of a metal, how does that lead to a change in temperature? Okay, we're using uh, special materials called magnetocaloric alloys. And these are materials that, when exposed to a magnetic field, they change temperature. And that forms the basis for magnetic cooling. Now, this effect has been known about for some time. In fact, I think it was discovered by Warburg in the late 19th century in iron at several hundred degrees Celsius. All that we're really doing is using this effect, but using it at room temperature, in order to exploit the temperature change. So what actually is that metal? I can see you have a a piece, roughly a square centimetre of it with you here. What's it made of? This particular alloy is 95% iron, but it's doped with uh, lanthanum, silicon and cobalt. And this has been designed to have a Curie temperature around room temperature. What I mean by that is when the material is below its Curie temperature, it's attracted to this magnet. As you can see, it's sticking onto the magnet quite happily. But when the material goes above its Curie temperature, the material ceases to become magnetic. 
And if I turn on the fan here and, and just keep... And it almost immediately fell off. Yes, as soon as it was pushed above its curie temperature, it fell off the magnet. And it's these magnetic properties that we're exploiting in a magnetic cooling engine. And, and combining that with the magnetochloric effect, the actual temperature change, you can actually create a four sides of a refrigeration cycle. And it's those four processes, the temperature change, and then the way the material changes its properties when exposed to heat, that you can use to actually pump heat from cold to hot or from hot to cold. So how would we then integrate this into the existing design of a fridge? In an existing fridge, you have the gas compressor, and the gas compressor absorbs heat from the interior of the fridge, and it also emits heat from a hot exchanger at the back of the fridge. In a magnetic cooling system, it's somewhat different, because our material, our refrigerant, isn't a gas or a liquid that's pumped around. Our refrigerant is solid, and so it sits inside our device. So in order to couple the refrigerant to the hot and cold exchanger, we use a liquid. But in fact, that liquid is nothing special. It's basically water. So in fact, with our magnetic solution, not only have we got rid of often toxic gases that are used in gas compressors, we have a solid, so it cannot leak. And at the same time, the liquid that we're using to move the heat around is safe, non-toxic fluid like water. So in terms of efficiency, you said the aim with this is to allow a new generation of extremely efficient fridges. How does it compare to what we've already got? How much bang for your buck do you get? Roughly speaking, if you take a standard A-plus fridge using a gas compressor and replace that gas compressor with our magnetic engine, you will double the efficiency of the fridge without having to make any other changes to the appliance. So it's a factor of two improvement what else can we refine to try and make this even better? Well, the first area is, is we can improve the refrigerant materials. The lanthanum iron silicon cobalt I talked about earlier, that's a very, a very nice compound. However, down the road in the next uh, 12 months, there will be a, a more powerful version of this material. And that will allow us to make the magnetic field smaller. So the device can be even, even smaller, even lighter and cost less. The second thing that uh, is key is to be able to run the machine faster. If you run the machine faster, you either create more cooling power or, again, require less material or less magnet. Those two factors combined uh, will allow us to either, A, make the solution for the domestic fridge less expensive and increasingly competitive, or alternatively, it will allow us to uh, make bigger versions in terms of cooling power for the technology that might be applicable for supermarkets or for car air conditioning. Neil Wilson, who is the CEO of Camfridge, he was talking with Ben Vowsler. I asked you earlier uh, to go on our Facebook page and tell us whether or not you would like to be frozen for 4,000 years and what your thoughts would be on the prospect of that. Uh, Bizfix Cambridge says, tough enough going on holiday for a week and then coming back. It seems like the world's moved on so far, catching up with 4,000 years of progress while you're asleep. Well... All right, then, let's go for it. Um, Gavin Campbell says, definitely. Uh, then when I was defrosted, I would claim I was missold payment protection insurance under the cryogenic plan. Uh, Rebecca Louise Roberts says, I would in the name of science as long as it's like Demolition Man, where you get to learn some sort of skill subconsciously, uh, just like Sly Stallone learnt to knit. And Andrew Reitemeyer says, sounds like a terrible waste of energy, but it might be worth it if you could put some money in the bank on compound interest, because after four millennia, it would be a tidy sum. Uh, but I don't know what bank I would trust for it still to be there in four years, let alone in four Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking about the science of the super cold this week, cryogenics, and our guests are from University College London, Barry Fuller, and from the University of Leeds, Lorna Dugan-Cat. got a question in from Nish Naya, and they want to know, has any living organism come back after being frozen? Are there things we can freeze that can still be alive afterwards? Well... Cat. There are some lower vertebrates that have evolved to live in very cold parts of the world, the Arctic tundra or Canadian permafrost areas, and it seems that they have developed a system which allows them to make their own antifreezes as winter turns around the corner. They're seasonally adjusted to, to make their antifreezes and then be a, they're able to survive freezing, but only freezing within a very limited temperature range of about minus 15 to minus 20 degrees centigrade. And they take very great care about where the ice forms in their body. So they are very carefully tuned to this process. Barry, we've heard from Berrigan Betts in Second Life, who says, can fish and frogs who naturally freeze help us to figure out how to freeze human organisms? Um, Could we explore a little bit about what happens in the bodies? Because you sort of tantalisingly hinted there at what they're doing with the careful positioning of the freezing and when and where. What's actually going on and how can these organisms inform strategies for healthcare? Well, I think Lorna will be able to come in in a moment too, but we've, we've learnt along the way that some of these organisms actually have what we call antifreeze proteins which dictate where the ice starts to form in their bodies. So instead of allowing themselves to freeze all over, as it were, they lo- localise the ice that does form into parts of their body that's not going to be injured, the areas under the skin or in the abdominal cavity, they try and avoid quite carefully freezing inside organs. So again, they're very evolutionary tuned to survive this process. One point that was made to me in relation to these specialist creatures like the frogs and toads that can survive being frozen solid is that one of the big problems is that if ice does form inside their cells, then the ice forms out of pure water and the solution that's left around the ice crystals is more concentrated so it pulls water into the cell by the process of osmosis making the cells swell a bit and then more freezing takes place and leaves more concentrated water so the cells swell a bit more and this ruptures cells so what they actually do is encourage themselves to freeze really well really quickly so in fact they don't have this process happening to rupture all of their cells i don't know if you have a a perspective on that lorna yes that's absolutely right so that's known as osmotic pressure or osmotic stress And in fact, that's how a lot of these organisms um, develop mechanisms to protect themselves. They, in vivo, they can change their solvent composition to either increase the amount of cryoprotectant molecules in the vicinity or reduce it. Um, Humans can do this as well, interestingly. We have membrane proteins called aqua or glycerolporins, and they can control the traffic of water or glycerol molecules across the cell membrane. Um, But of course, we obviously can't do it as effectively as some of these other organisms like the frogs or the fish. But perhaps there is potential there for the future. And perhaps in a related vein, Lorna, Android Neox, also on Second Life, says, can you mix water with something that stops it expanding when it freezes? Well, again, water and glycerol have really fantastic properties. Uh, You can freeze water, as we know, at around uh, zero degrees C, whereas glycerol, pure glycerol, freezes at a much higher temperature. 
If you mix the two components together, you can actually reduce the freezing temperature to below zero, I believe at a concentration of 0.3 mole fractions, so 30% glycerol, 70% water, you can get the freezing temperature of that solution all the way down to minus 45 degrees C. Now what that's doing to the actual hydrogen bonded network of water, that's exactly what we're trying to find out using this neutron diffraction technique. So we've got these natural antifreezes in the frogs and fish and we can buy antifreeze in the shop that's pretty horribly toxic stuff. Why don't these natural antifreezes cause problems uh, for, for the animals, for their metabolism? Well, in fact, uh, many of the natural antifreeze cryoprotectants are simply sugars and sugar alcohols, which we use every day and which are heavily used in the food industry. The problem becomes when we use very high quantities of them at the cellular level, then they can become toxic to the cell. And researchers are doing very detailed studies to find out what exact concentration these cryoprotectants become uh, toxic. Got an interesting one from Laurie McWhorter, who's obviously a bit green-fingered, um, but maybe a bit gangrene-fingered as well, who says, what happens when plants get frosted? Why are some plants affected, like tomatoes, but others seem to be invulnerable? Barry, what's your view on that one? Again, this is an evolutionary trick. As winter comes along in cold environments, these particular plants have learnt how to change their chemical metabolism, starting to produce more of the sugars and the the alcohols that Lorne was talking about, and it allows them to survive the, the overwintering period. But not obviously not all plants will do that. And we've got uh, one more question here from Phil Dance, who wants to know, will it ever be possible to revive a cryopreserved human? What do you reckon, Barry? Do you think we will get there? If you're asking a personal opinion, uh, no. I think freezing whole human bodies at the moment is a matter of personal choice and, and faith. Um, there's no scientific evidence that we will be able to cryopreserve a whole human body or a whole human person in, in a way that would allow them to come back sensibly and live their life out in the future. So bad news for Walt Disney and his freezer then. Lorna, have you got any, any ideas on that one? Um, yeah, I think I'm in agreement with, with Barry, but perhaps the romantic in me would like to believe that in time anything is possible with science. Just to finish us off here, talking about things you can keep in the fridge for a while, Sean Hoskins has said when one defrosts a slab of steak that's been in the freezer for a year, it has a very different consistency than a chunk that's only been frozen for a week. I can only assume that evaporation is the issue. Is there any degradation when something is frozen like this or frozen at colder temperatures like in liquid nitrogen? You're right, Chris, that there's a problem, as Lorna said all along, with ice and domestic freezers only cool steaks down to about minus 10 minus 15 degrees centigrade there's plenty of mobile water there and the ice will recrystallize over time so you get larger ice crystals and you do get evaporation directly uh, cold evaporation so you're left with freeze burn effect which changes the texture and changes the overall flavor value and I guess also if your vegetables are frozen and then you cook them, the, the vegetable tissue is riddled with holes, so the goodies are more likely to float out and they're going to be less good for you than fresh. Yes, you get the mushy strawberry effect. I think if anybody <laughs> could freeze strawberries really well, they could make a fortune. M mushy peas are good, though. Lorna, anything to add to that? Um, <laughs> just a, a tip, uh, puree your strawberries before you freeze them and then uh, you don't have the mushy strawberry effect. 
Cat. They're mushy already. Uh, talking of uh, tough questions, here's our very own ice queen, Diana O'Carroll, who's been rifling through our genes in the name of Question of the Week. This week, what's swimming in the great Olympic-sized pool of human genetics? Here's Derek from Japan. Hi. My question is, should we be worried about the future of the human genome? And what I mean by that is, we no longer reproduce based on the strongest survive. Medical science has gone to a point where many people live to adulthood who would have never lived 50, 100, 300 years ago. Severe genetic problems that used to not allow those people to grow to adulthood are now easily solved, yet we pass those on to our children now. So should we be worried about what's happening to the human genome? And is there anything we can do about it? Thanks. Is modern medicine having a greater effect than natural selection would? Hello, my name's Professor Bill Amos, and I'm based in the zoology department in Cambridge University. This is an interesting question, but I'm afraid many of the aspects really are quite unresolved. Perhaps we could start with the problems with births. Humans, of course, have been evolving larger and larger brains for a while now, which gives them larger skulls, and this, of course, can present problems during the birth process. These days we can use caesarean section, but the key point here is that it's only going to become an increasing problem if those children born by caesarean section are born, grow up and have larger families than on average. And this is a recurrent theme. So, for example, individuals with spina bifida, this is a rare genetic disease, if they also grow up, Again, this is only going to become an increasing problem if they themselves then have larger families. And it's almost certainly not the case that this would happen with most genetic defects. I think perhaps more interesting is the question of the immune function, the genes that help us fight disease. And here I think there may be an interesting issue. In developing countries where there's much less access to medical treatment and antibiotics, Many children die through infections that are potentially preventable. This, in theory, removes some of the individuals with weaker or poorly attuned immune systems from the population. But in the Western culture, where more medicine is present, these individuals would grow up. So what happens to them in Western culture? My best guess is that these are the people who are likely most prone to asthma and allergies, since these are potentially reflections of a poorly tuned immune system, and that is what we might predict these have. So modern medicine might change who lives and who dies, but as the human population is so large, the overall effect on the gene pool shouldn't be species-altering. And this is because the number of people either being born by caesarean section or surviving in spite of inherited diseases aren't likely to breed in greater numbers than the rest of the population. Human immune function, however, may change through time. And on the forum, Clifford Kay very interestingly pointed out the other side, in that the technology to abort fetuses with chromosomal abnormalities exists, and that sperm donors can be selected on the basis of what we consider to be positive attributes. And from one pair of perfect partners to another, cheese and wine. Hello, Naked Scientists. My name's Tom. I'm originally from the UK, but I currently live in Wellington, New Zealand. I'd like to know where the taste of some food complement each other so well, for example, cheese and wine. Thanks very much, and keep up the great show. 
Blessed are the cheesemakers. But why? Answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. You can Facebook us or you can Twitter at Naked Scientists. Thank you very much, Diana O'Carroll. So if you know why cheese and wine go so well together, then do get in touch. That's all we have time for this week. Thank you to our wonderful guest, Lorna Dugan, who's from Leeds University, and Barry Fuller, who is from University College London, and also to our production team, Tom Simpkins, Miracynthia Lingham, Ben Vowsler, and Emma Stoy. Now, next week, we're going to be tickling your scientific taste buds because we're exploring the chemistry of cooking and also the microbiology behind blue cheese. Because, get it, it is cheese awareness week it really is next week in the meantime if you have a science question for us then do tweet it to at naked scientists you can write on our facebook wall that's nakedscientist.com slash facebook to get there or you can of course email us chris at the naked scientists.com the naked scientists comes to you from cambridge university and is supported by the wellcome trust the epsrc the natural environment research council and uk fast for more information Look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.